Welcome to Investec Focus Radio. I'm Tim Spira, Head of Content at Investec. And I want to start this podcast by taking you back to the early 1970s, when a young South African engineer decided to quit a perfectly good job. Why? Because the company he was working for was acquired by Nedfin, a big bank, and he couldn't see the point of working for a big bank. So off he went, and in 1974, he started his own small leasing business. Earlier this month, that same man retired from the board of that same small leasing business, now an international bank and wealth management company with a multi-billion pound market cap, dual listings in London and Johannesburg, and nearly 10,000 employees across five continents. His name is Ian Cantor, and the company he founded is called Investec. I'm delighted that he's agreed to chat to us today about his 45 years with Investec and some of the lessons in life and leadership that he's learned along the way. Ian joins us from Kitzbühel, Austria, where he's sitting out the COVID-19 epidemic, far from the madding crowds of his home in Amsterdam. Ian, thanks so much for speaking to us today. Thank you. When one reads the stories of successful companies, it's often about a founder with a wonderful vision and a string of deliberate actions that he or she takes to realize that vision. But I imagine when you're in the midst of events, things are a bit more murky, a bit more chaotic. So I wanted to start out by asking you, when you started Investec in 1974, did your vision of what the company could become look anything like the Investec of today? No, it's, no. The vision was very simple. What do we need to do to put bread on the table tomorrow? I've met people with vision, a lot of them, you know, in dirty old raincoats walking around Jubair Park. So I, I've yet to meet anybody who had a vision and said, this is what I'm going to do and do it. I don't know how you can know what the future holds. So it seems very difficult to me. So at what point did you realize that this business, even if you couldn't predict the future, that it had the potential to be as successful as it's been? Was there a point in time? No, I don't, I don't think uh, there wasn't a point. Yeah, it's a kind of growing awareness. I often use the term progressive insight. I think I stole it from a sort of Dutch thing that uh, they call a thing called Fortschrittende Insect. So with hindsight, I would call it progressive insight. But I don't think at a time that we knew. And I, I don't think you ever know, you know, it can all fall over tomorrow. So I've always taken, I've always felt, you know, well, it's, it's good while it's there, but it may not be there tomorrow. We used to have meetings every morning. Are we going to survive? That was the meeting. What do we need to do to survive? But of course, as it turned out, you did survive. And a lot of businesses in similar circumstances don't. With the benefit of hindsight, what was it that you did right? Yeah, I think one of the things that we that we learned early on was you don't know the answers. You don't have the answers. And when you think you have it, you're wrong. And so often you didn't know what was commercially correct. It was just a simpler way of dealing with it trying to do what you felt was ethically correct, morally, ethically, ethically. I mean, it sounds very, it sounds cheesy, but but when you don't know what the right commercial answer is, at least try and do the right thing. I'm sure this led to some interesting debates, thinking about the core group that built the business in those early days, and we'll talk about them more in a moment. But these were strong-willed and strong-minded people, and I'm guessing they all had their own ideas about uh, what that right thing was. If anybody offered to pick me up in the morning, the answer was no thanks. Because you were going to get in the, you know, the whole way to the office. Why did we do this? Why didn't we do that? We should have done this. Could have, should have, would have, didn't. I, uh, and it would drive me crazy. And so in a very short period of time, I said, okay, we're going to meet every morning. And I think it was 7.30. I'm subject to correction. Because we used to go and train upstairs. There was a, in the IGI building. By the time we got there, there was a fellow who ran the, the building called Harry Ovens. Wonderful guy was an older guy and he did yoga every morning. And then we would go up there and train, he would train us. 
at six o'clock, and then by seven thirty, you were you had your serum and you at at your desk. And could you talk a little more about those early morning meetings, and also about the cast of characters? Because this wasn't just you and your co-founder Errol Grohlman. These meetings would have included Stephen Kossuth, Larry Nestat, and Glenn Berger, and of course your brother Bernard. Big personalities. So you sit down, and and it used to be that everybody was asleep half past seven in the morning, all sleeping, and then something would happen, and there'd be a row most often between Bernard and Stephen. Errol would say something, and Bernard and Stephen would have the row. And then everybody woke up. Many years later, Bernard had a, f- a habit of naysaying. And because you had a veto right, Bernard would say, no, it's rubbish. We're not doing it. Okay? And I'd been extremely sick, a lot of pain, morphine, whatever, for years. I was sent for post-traumatic stress treatment. So the guy I'm working with says, so tell me some of your stress moments. I explained this thing about this guy, you know, my brother. And uh, so I said, okay. He says, uh, in Dutch, he was a dwarslicher. So a dwarslicher, you understand, in, in South Africa, somebody that lies across the road. But it's also the sleeper on the road. So in Dutch, it means somebody who is difficult, obstinate, and contrary. But it also means a sleeper, for rowe. So he said, have you ever seen anybody ever build a railway line without dwarfslichers? And I thought, what a wonderful analogy, because it just was the value that somebody who would object to everything forced us to go through a really serious process to better understand what we were doing. So not always plain sailing then working with your brother, but in the end, do you think it strengthened your relationship? I don't think it made our lives easier. I mean, our lives have never been particularly easy as brothers. I will tell you to this day, he is my best friend. So uh, I sit here in Kitzbühel, I look at the mountains, I want to tell Bernard how beautiful it is. I want to tell him how I miss Amsterdam and, and our kids in Amsterdam. So in, in many ways, um, you know, both of my brothers are extremely good friends. But Bernard and I, somebody said to me one day, do you know how you make steel from iron? I said, no idea. He said, fire, you put the iron in the fire, and then you do what you have to do, and you put it in water. You hammer it and put it back in the fire, hammer it again, in water. And it's that fire and water that turns iron into a very powerful instrument, which is steel. And I think that it goes for a lot of the relationships that we develop with each other as the six of us. Stephen Kossoff is a name that's become synonymous with Investec, particularly in South Africa. In 2018, he stepped down after 40 years as CEO. Ian, what was he like in those early days? Stephen was technical, technically very good in a lot of things. And I think I was conscious of the fact that I was emotionally the leader. I was the emotional leader. But in many discussions, you would say, well, you would let the guy who knew the most run the discussion. Stephen ran a lot of the discussions because he was just, you know, whether it was a discussion on financial statements, on credit, on because he had a great depth of understanding of all of those things. Not that the rest of us were materially far behind or didn't have it. But Stephen you know, held the floor, would go into the detail. Stephen's power base was technical. Bernard's power base, in a strange way, was personal. When you look at power, one day we can talk about it. But the strongest power base is always personal. So the person who says no or fuck off in his language is often the person with the most power in the room. Um, doesn't mean he can't be challenged. Doesn't mean that he wasn't challenged, right? Errol's power base was an uncanny ability to stick by what was correct, what was the right thing to do. So Errol 
he didn't take the moral high ground because that's that would make other people very uncomfortable. He would just dig in and say, no, but it's not right. You can't do that. And he had an uncanny logic. Another one of the company founders was Larry Nestat, who's currently chairman of Blue Label Telecoms. How did he fit into the mix? Larry, he was competitive. He and Bernard competed as to who could write the most business. But if you ever thought that you would say something mean or nasty about somebody, and we could, and we did, Larry's response was, if you can't say something nice, say nothing. In my life, I'll never forget that. Larry was, I don't want to use the word appeaser because that's wrong in that meeting. Larry wasn't the appeaser, but he was the one, he could be stubborn enough, but who would look to help other people find agreement with each other. And not by reasoning, he'd say, come on, Stephen, just be reasonable. They wouldn't argue. They wouldn't argue just being difficult. We mentioned Glenn Berger earlier, a man who's always been behind the scenes maybe, but also widely credited with holding the operation together. Glenn, well, we called him True Grit, but it was actually True Glue. Glenn was the younger, and he was like the glue in the group, the glue in the organization, not just the group. So Glenn had the role of gluing things and people together and getting the job done. So the process would, would spin around until Larry would say, be reasonable or something. My job, as I saw it, was not to make the decision. My job was just to get us to an agreement. So I'm not saying that I would accept anything that they came with, but by and large, if the five of them said, this is what we're doing, I wasn't going to argue. I did. Stephen said I would just hold them there until they agreed with me. Yes, it's some truth in that, but not entirely true. But somehow you managed to agree in the end, or at least decide collectively on a way forward. Could you talk a bit about the process of getting to those decisions? So if I want to persuade you, if six people walk into a room, what's the chance that we'd all have the same opinion about an issue? Zero. So there are two kinds of decision-making. One is strategy, structure, policy, and shared resource. It's collective, takes time, and it's rational. And that's where you need unanimity within a small group, anything less than six. Broad group, you'd say broad endorsement, right? bigger group. Uh, but immediate decisions, trading decisions are hierarchical. You've got a mandate. Uh, within your mandate, you can do instinctive and fast. You've got to get back to the client. You've got to get back to your counterparty. But that's not where you have those long discussions. But those discussions taught us a hell of a lot. We learned a lot about the material. We learned a lot about each other. And you had to find agreement. So when you're looking for agreement, you say, well, okay, in, within this space, that's what we were discussing. We'd say within this space, what are you going to do? And the answer is obvious. You couldn't find agreement in within the space. So very often the answer lay outside the box to try and give you an analogy. You know, if, you, if you fill a business of a 1,000 people with a 1,000 creative people, you don't get a creative business. You get chaos. So the outside the box was just where do we find each other? I guess that you know, they often gave us interesting ideas, interesting solutions to problems, which made it better. And then the second thing you learned was that you learned a hell of a lot about yourself, but also about your colleagues. And so it was very educational. And then there's the lock-in, which is what I was talking to. Uh, I shouldn't mention names. I mentioned Morrison Tumbeni. I think he's now interim dean of Gibbs eight or nine years ago, and he was doing his thesis on culture. And he said, locking into what? Were you locking into Investec? No way. Although a lot of those people, original people, none of them left voluntarily. Nobody left. So it wasn't locking into Investec, wasn't locking into each other. They were locking into the idea. 
which meant that when you had the idea, you could execute it. It was easy. I didn't have to be a policeman, which is what I didn't want to be. People got on with what we had agreed. And even when it was a, a really lousy decision, and we made some lousy decisions, everybody was behind it. It's an interesting phenomenon that if everybody's behind the decision, they make it work. It doesn't have to be the right one. You, obviously, you, you try and make it the right one. But you know, it wasn't always the right decision. I'm smiling because so much of what you've described has survived through the years and is still integral in Investex culture, the notion of talking it out and locking into the idea and reaching consensus. But speaking from my own experience, from when I first joined Investec, it can also be frustrating because, you know, sometimes you've, you've locked in on your own idea and you want to move ahead, but you have to get this broad consensus. And that can be tough, right? It was very difficult. We didn't have the tools. I now have more of the tools. I, I can tell you some of the tools are really easy. Yeah, so, I mean, I referred to Bus before. I thought Bus was the most extraordinary guy. That's Bus Coddle, who was chairman for about a decade? Yeah, all the chairmen have been ama amazing. So I'm not to mention names, but I mean, Bus was just extraordinary. And he used a technique which I subsequently learned from a guy who taught us to negotiate, Bernard Pinar, called progressive summarization. You sit in a board meeting, or you sit in a management meeting, and you're discussing this thing and nobody knows, and eventually Bus says, well, I think we can all agree that this is a very difficult uh, thing and maybe we should, we can all agree that we should set up a subcommittee of four people who come back to the meeting next month to examine it in more detail and come back with some ideas. Uh, that's agreement. Okay, so that's your first step. The next month, the guys come back and so you build agreements. It wasn't that we would fight it out and necessarily have agreement in a day. It took time to build agreement through what I've subsequently learned to call progressive summarization, and also the ability to listen to other people. And uh, during Bass's tenure as chairman, the company grew rapidly, as did the share price. It was a hundredfold. It went up a hundredfold, the price, in eight years. A client of ours who phoned me off the rights issue, and the price had dropped from, uh, I forget, like five rand to three rand eighty or something. And he said, you're a lousy business, and I don't want your share. I said, listen, I'll, I don't know what to do for you, but I can tell you what I will do. I will offer to buy them, but I'm disclosing fully that I'm buying the shares. Fully monitored, fully disclosed, fully sure. I mean, I saw him eight years later, he just said, biggest mistake I ever made. So I hope he still speaks to me, I'm sure he will. I want to come back to some of these leadership techniques you were talking about earlier, but let's first just set the scene. Is it true you never wanted to get into banking? No, no, I had no interest. As an engineer, I loved, discovered, um, uh, quantitative business at business school. And we had some amazing teachers. They were extraordinarily lucky at, in, in that time. Some of the best teachers in the world coming to spend three months in Cape Town. And one of the things I learned was the mathematics of finance. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And, and it was very current. It was vogue. It was exciting, you know. So, yeah, that's what I loved. And then I got a job at IBM as a salesman in the finance, banking, insurance industry. In fact, I joined as a systems engineer. Do an MBA in engineering, you, you go to IBM. That was big blue was, by the way, at that stage, IBM at that stage was 6% of world market. Big blue was amazing. Okay, it was huge. So I joined IBM and the finance, banking, insurance, and I worked with financial institutions, loved it. And then one day a client of ours offered me a job. It was Lease Plan International and, I, and, I, and leveraged leasing and project finance. And um, so I was IBM two and a half years, at least then, and I wake up one morning and I was, and it really was good. I was learning so much and I was enjoying it. And, um, 
I'm on holiday in Cape Town and I get a note saying they sold the business to Netfin, Netfin Bank. My own cost, I flew back to Johannesburg to resign immediately. So yeah, that was, uh, that was the story about I wasn't going to work for a big bank. Couldn't see the point. Okay, so you left Lease Plan um, and then you went to work for Michael Lewis at uh, Hoskin Brokers. Joined Hoskin and uh, did very well for them on the investment committee because that's what my job was. And then we took the profit and we took a lot of the money and put it into a leasing company. And Michael was an impossible guy. I mean, just impossible to work with. And he kept saying, I'm going to fire you if you don't do this. And, that. and so I learned, you know, you, okay, Michael, great idea. Tell me how you want me to do it. No, just get on with it. So that came, Michael. And next week, have you done it? No. <laughs> anyway, so eventually I said, Michael, this is not going to work. We'll buy the leasing company from you. And Errol and I, Errol joined me. Then said, well, what are we going to call this thing? And we just made a list of names and the words investment and technology came up. So we applied for Investec, T-E-C-H, and we, they would refuse to give it to us. So we're very upset. We said, okay, Investec with a C. Fine. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's prescient. It was very prescient at the time. Amazing that the name could have survived for over 40 years. And, I mean, not that many names do that. But that the name and that it was so that it's now so it's such a timeless name. It's arguably more relevant now than ever with the emergence of fintech and the importance of technology and finance. So the interesting story as well is that the logo has survived. So the logo, and forget about Raymond Zebra, but the logo survived. That little thing, like a marker thing in the sea. The, the typeface that we chose has survived, which I, which I find interesting. I mean, it's not uh, it's not a feather in anybody's cap. It's just interesting that we designed something at that stage, and we thought. I mean, we really argued and thought, and fought, Errol, Larry, and myself, and that that survived. Some context here: Raymond is Raymond Van Nickak, who was Investec's global head of marketing until 2016, and who's credited with introducing Investec's iconic zebra. But back to Hoskin and Michael Lewis. Anyway, so I will thank Michael is impossible, and I will, I will continue to thank him for the rest of my life because without him, it would not have happened. I wasn't looking to start a company; I just couldn't face living with every day you're going to be fired. So I was still been working for him. It was not on my dreamless to go and start a company. But it seemed easier and um, we'll buy the business, we'll run the book down, we'll take a margin and we'll see what we can do with it. And while you were starting the business, you were also teaching at Wits. And I wasn't sure it could pay me a salary, so I went to teach. I'd always wanted to teach and I was, and I was keen to do a, a PhD. Never got there. And I think I was a good teacher for any of those kids. You meet a lot of them walking around in still. For any of them who were my pupils, I, I thought I was a good teacher. But I, I was terrified. The first day, if you know Wits, then Wits in the Senate House, first day I walk in, 300 kids straight from school. I'm not that much older. And the noise was terrifying. And I'd written everything up very nicely on the blackboard. I had no idea. I thought, what in God's name suggested to you that you should be doing this? And I just stood there and I, and, and I kind of dropped my head a bit because I thought, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I don't want to look at them. And they quieted down. It just went quiet. And I guess I've used that trick ever since, which is when I'm not sure, just look down and say nothing. And if anybody said anything, there was a murmur, I would stop, mid-sentence, boom, keep quiet. And I never had to send anybody out. I never had to reprimand anybody. It was just a nice kind of trick, useful when you get into that situation. I guess that taught me a hell of a lot that I took back to investing. In a tough discussion, tough argument, don't know 
keep quiet. Or as Brad Freed explained, he learned from my brother, shut the fuck up. So confronting things, adversity, I think is where we learned a hell of a lot from. I did, I know we all did. A bit more context, Brad Freed joined Investec in 1999 and served as both COO and CEO of Investec Bank PLC in the UK and is now chairman of the Court of the Bank of England. So, Ian, now you're building a leasing business, you're lecturing on the side, and despite your best efforts, you find that you're forced to become a banker after all. We got a letter from the central bank, the Reserve Bank, saying that we're in contravention of the Banks Act. Find Joe Rabinovitz, a wonderful, sweet man, top lawyer. Joe, what do we do? We got to make an appointment with uh, Mr. Lindequi in Pretoria at the Reserve Bank. And he tells me in no uncertain terms that we were in contravention of the Banks Act. I said, okay. So um, he said, but you have a very clever lawyer. You have a very, very clever lawyer, Mr. Cantor. Um, and if your lawyer is correct, then you will not be in contravention of the Banks Act. I said, thank you very much, Mr. Lindequi. He said, but then we will change the regulations and you will still be in contravention of the Bank Act. I said, I was so shocked, I didn't know where to find my car afterwards. Couldn't find it. And so we, we yeah, so that was the, 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 no desire to become a bank. We had a fantastic leasing company. So the bank, you know, was not, but thanks to Mr. Lindequi again and that little piece of adversity, we had to become a bank. And we wrote to every bank, Larry wrote to every single bank in the country. Um, and eventually we got a response from Ralph Mormon in Cape Town, who I knew, said, Ian, I need to talk to you. Flew down the same day, spoke to him, and they had a liquidation practice. I didn't know it was a bank. Cape Trustees and Executive in Spin Street, beautiful old Herbert Baker building, belonged to the Eindhoven family. And uh, yeah, we, we said, give us the bank and we'll give you that. And they had problems with two top, top bankers in town who were shareholders and had a management contract, and they felt that they were stealing from them, uh, using the bank to guarantee things and taking some of the guarantee uh, into their own pockets. That gave us the opportunity. I mean, I can carry on telling stories. Let me stop there. So you buy the bank, and then fast forward to the late 1980s. Now, Investec at this stage is doing pretty well. Uh, and at that point, you decide to leave South Africa and go off to the Netherlands. What was behind that decision? Now, as I said, I never planned to work for a bank, never planned to build a bank, never planned any of that. And I thought, you know, actually, this thing's good. I know where it's going. Yeah, we'll develop in, in those areas. Uh, and But the world for me was just a big, exciting place. Now, you're young. I was still young enough. Uh, we had a daughter who needed serious medical care, and uh, my ex-wife was Dutch, and I thought, okay, you know, where can I go, to? You'd spent a fair amount of time in the States, but you decided against moving there? You had to have a lot of money because you had to pay for school, university, everything. And when I looked at Amsterdam, I thought, good God, that's extraordinary. Schools are for nothing. University, almost for nothing. And I'd been into pubs on a Saturday night at one o'clock. You think this is not going to be fun. Amazing. Everybody's sitting there quietly drinking, chatting away. It's fun. And I thought that was an extraordinary society. And they all had an opinion on everything all the time. In fact, they had more than one opinion at the same time. Like my brother Bernard. Bernard has two opinions in the same sentence, or maybe five even. I was massively attracted to that. And the contrast for me with America was just so huge. And that you had a country where they had not had a majority party in 200 years. They never had a majority party. 
and it's a number of other countries. So all those governments or coalitions it gave me a sense of stability. Everything was sprouted out in the press. You could say whatever you like. Nobody gave it damn. You had the right to your opinion. Sounds a bit like Investec. I would say Investec would have been ahead of its time culturally in, in, in Amsterdam as well. And so the, why I say Investec would have been ahead was that they had a fairly hierarchical bureaucratic style, which had come out of things like the, the biggest company in the world for a hell of a long time, for 200 years, was the Dutch East Indies Company, which is now Royal Dutch Shell. First thing you ask in Holland when you do anything, what am I responsible for? How must I do it? And to whom am I responsible? So we were fairly early and had that culture. If you look in Amsterdam now, there are hundreds of startups and cultures much the same as an investor culture. Everybody's shouting, everybody's talking, they're all busy fighting as to what they should be doing. Let me pick up on that word culture. What for you is the essence of Investec's culture? Because it's a word that's used a lot at Investec, but it's not really something that's written down or codified. It's something that's uh, inherent in the way people behave and interact every day. I, I love that. It makes me very happy. I think for me, the rule is very simple, is that uh, up to six people, you can decide anything you like as long as it's unanimous. That's the code. It's this secret code. The motor, I think, that drives what happens and, and drives investing. And again, going back to Morrison Tumbeni, just by chance, but talking to him at Gibbs a couple of years ago and Nicola Klein, who was then director of, or about to be, of Gibbs, was there. And she'd worked at Investec. Hello, how are you? And somebody else there said, so how are you going to make sure that you don't lose your culture? To which she very smartly observed, the problem is not losing the culture. The problem is how do you change it and prevent it from becoming a cult? And I thought that was very insightful. It was a, a very astute comment to have made. So I think you, it's very hard when people have developed the right to make their own decisions for somebody to come in and say, no, no, you can't do that. How, how does anybody actually stop you doing that? So I think the culture would be, in my mind, I think is pretty well embedded. I think where, where there's change and where you can uh, afford change and, and should change is instead of, you know, fighting confrontationally, is that you discuss things. And so you can turn a conversation that would have been polarized and confrontational actually into a far more creative process with far less friction and less difficulty. So I think in that sense, I would love to see the culture change. So let's talk about that, because we've just seen a change in leadership from the founding group to Fani Titi and Ruth Lees, Richard Wainwright, and uh, Hendrik de Toy, who's leading the asset management business, now 91. But I wanted to talk about Fani in particular, because one of the things I saw when I was researching uh, for this talk is that you grew up in the free state, not very far from where Fani grew up. And uh, I mean, Fani's story is an incredible one. The fact that the son of a black farm laborer who grew up at a time when any black person in South Africa was seen as a second class citizen, the fact that uh, someone from that background is now leading this business that you've helped to build, that must hold a lot of poignancy for you. Yeah, I think I've consistently checked on the board, been a great supporter of Fani's. I mean, all Fani. It's one thing to be where I am, given where I came from. My father was an engineer, he built huge dams. Uh, big projects. Um, I didn't go to private schools and we didn't have that kind of money, but you went to good schools. You come from the bush and you didn't go to any school and you wind up in Kwakwa, which was, and again, a godsend, by the way. They were sent to Kwakwa. You can ask him because his father was a rebel. Obviously, he wasn't a silly man and uh, the farmers didn't want him there anymore. Sent to Kwakwa, but there he went to a good school. Just the irony. 
And that school said, no, you have to study further, which he did, ending up at Barclay as a mathematician. Yeah, there are two people who really, and I shouldn't mention names because I don't want to miss people out, but Mark Malach Brown is on the board, Lord Mark Malach Brown, articulates the culture better than anybody I've seen. He just does it so well. Farney lives it. He actually lives the culture. I'm not saying Farney's a saint, he's perfect. Tell you this, that, and the next thing about Farney, that's fine. Smart as shit, lives the culture, and he ain't no pushover. You don't come from where he's come from to be a pushover. So my respect for people like Farney, others who, during the Soweto riots, at the age of six were lying on, on the floor in their schoolrooms, yeah, and get to that same level, I say, give me a break. Uh, it's not difficult to be humble at that point. So Ian, you're leaving the business in good hands, but also in difficult market conditions. Difficult, I think, for any business, but it's also been a business that has seen some scary times before. I'm thinking, for example, about the global financial crisis of 2008, but also the turbulent times in South Africa, even going back to the 1970s with the Soweto uprising, and around the same time that Investec was starting up. So I suppose you could say that the company was born into turbulent times. People who are young forget 1976. Was, was terrifying. But I thought it was a great time to start a business. I think you, it's much easier to build value in tough times because resources are cheap. So you get access to much better people. You get access to better space, be it cyberspace, be it advertising, be it office location. You're working at, you know, many of us are going to carry on working like this. You're not going to go back to office every day. Or in many countries and many companies, that's not going to happen anymore. So it's changed. And I think the, the, the ability to try and build a business in a tough time is a huge benefit, huge. Because when everything is good, everybody's clamoring for the same people. Everybody's clamoring for the same space. Everybody's got money to throw at it. One thing I can tell you now, two things. One, things have changed and there's less money. There's just going to be less money. Can't be otherwise. And then building a business in a foreign country, immigrating stuff. Ask anybody who's done it. Try and immigrate a business. How many successful businesses have there been? that emigrated from South Africa. It's not easy. There have been one, some, we know them. But um, not everybody who emigrated from South Africa, business-wise, was successful. So I think particularly in banking and to the UK, if you don't speak the Queen's English, what do you want here? Who are you? They have made it very, very difficult. And I think that we've got to a point where, if I look at the chairman of the, of the UK bank, um, Brian, top guy, Queen's English. I look at the chairman of the South African bank, Kuma, top guy, right? All South African. And so when I look at the quality of the board, so that to me starts at the top. Ian is referring here to Ryan Thole, head of Investex private banking business in the UK, and Kumo Shwenyani, chairman of Investec Bank Limited in South Africa. I always said I would not run a marathon. Investec, 45 years was my marathon. Crossed the finishing line, yeah? I'm happy to cross the finishing line. I'm happy about that I could cross the finishing line with my arms up. Because when I look at Investec today, oh, this is an incredibly tough situation. I don't think the world's in a good space. We're in a really tough space. Again, I think a lot of good may come from it, but we're in a really tough space. And for Investec, it's now not any easier than for anybody else. Where do you see the future opportunities for Investec? The opportunity is Investec and that, that machine of fighting for the right ideas. It's for the guys in Investec finding solutions to their differences that will create the opportunity. Not for me. I can't tell you, you know, go west, young man, going to chemicals, young man. I know. But I can tell you that I think the culture is going to uncover many, many opportunities.
So in that sense, making the culture work efficiently or even better effectively is what would be a great opportunity for Investec. So I think it's this Japanese thing of a thousand cuts. At every level, you've got to be better. And when I look at Investec, I mean, the number of comments I get from top people who are clients of Investec and they use, for instance, the Enigma card, they are thrilled. Now, I've, been, I've had people here in Austria visiting us, 12 o'clock at night, chairman of a big institution says, I want to show you something, what this card does of yours. I'm lying. Mike's a phone, phone call 12 o'clock Saturday night. I've got a problem. Can you help me, please? Yeah, sorted. So that's great news. Yeah, and, and there are many areas in which we really deliver an outstanding service. So to have that good, you know, you know the story, good, better, best, better. Always better. So the thing of trying to do things better, and I think that that's hardwired into Investec, into that motor that, that, that drives is a very simple thing. Decide to do anything you like as long as you all agree. Yeah, and thank you so much. It has been fantastic. Went on a trip, but I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. What a wonderful trip indeed. To continue the journey, please go to our content hub on the web, Investec Focus, where we delve further into some of the lessons Ian has learned during nearly half a century at Investec. We hope you'll have a read. To make sure you don't miss any of our other podcasts on Investec Focus Radio, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this discussion, please do take a moment to rate us. Thanks for listening.